other way to live, I probably owe it to myself to find out what that is. Whether it's right for me or not right for me, I have no idea. But just knowing that it's out there, being someone who's curious, I felt like I need to know. This is another way to live. I need to know what that is and make a decision, an informed decision about whether or not that is right for me. So that's what I started doing. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, a business strategist and consultant from Atlanta, living and thriving in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, it's me, Christine, the host and creator of Flourish in the Foreign. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. And I just want to shout out all of our new listeners. Hey, hey everyone. I'm so excited that you have found Flourish in the Foreign. Welcome to the family. We're so happy that you're here. And thank you guys so much for messaging me, emailing me, leaving reviews already. That's what I'm talking about. That is what I'm talking about. I received a review uh, stating that you really enjoy the podcast, which I love. But also you said you want to learn more about me. I think you said you were starting from the very beginning. So by the time you hear this, you might have already discovered that season one, episode 10, is the episode about me. Now that episode is three years old. I don't live in Barcelona anymore. I live in Valencia. And a lot of things have changed, but I think it's a good starting point, I would say. I do have a playlist of other interviews I've done on other people's podcasts, which you can also find on flourishintheforeign.com under the About tab. So there's that, but maybe I need to do an updated episode just about me. Hmm, that feels uncomfortable as the deep, deep introvert that I am. But you know what? Maybe I'll do that in the upcoming season, or maybe at the top of the year. I definitely want you all to check out the Flourishful Forum blog. I have a recent blog post written by Dr. Casey Dupart, all about nurturing a sense of belonging, key to children's well-being abroad. Now, this is a really important blog post, I believe, because I know a lot of y'all have children that you'll be taking abroad at different ages and Cultivating a sense of community, resilience, and belonging is so, so important. Regardless if your child is quite young and you'll be abroad for a long time. So really trying to figure out that sense of belonging and identity as a third culture kid. Or perhaps your child is older and you're going to be moving to a place where perhaps there isn't a large black community, a black American community, a black Caribbean community, or what have you. And so trying to develop that sense of belonging as an adolescent might be something that's on your mind. Or for some of you all who are listening, you're going to go abroad and you're going to have children. And developing a sense of identity and belonging that honors perhaps your culture and your heritage while they're fully immersed in another one is something that you're probably thinking about as well. I really think this blog post is an excellent place to start. And Dr. Casey Dupart is the expert to handle all of these things. Not only is she an accomplished K-12 administrator, school psychologist, certified clinical trauma professional, but she has lived abroad and she has worked with children abroad. So I just want you guys to check that out and leave a comment. Let me know what you found helpful, any other questions that you feel that are coming up. And of course, you can always drop me suggestions on other things that you would love for me to cover on the website in episodes or anything else. Please remember that the Flourish in the Foreign Patreon will be coming to an end at the end of 2023. So please be sure to become a monthly supporter 
at buymeacoffee. That's buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign, where you'll find benefits like the Flourish in the Foreign book club, author chats, monthly chats with me, invitations to recording sessions, and much more. A friendly reminder to everyone, I will be doing another Ask Me Anything episode at the end of this season, so be sure to please submit your questions via the link in the description of this episode. Also, stay tuned to the very end of this episode for a gift from me to you. All right. On to the episode. Season 5, Episode 2. Today's episode features Crystal Winston. Crystal is an American urbanist, consultant, and serial social entrepreneur. She received both her undergraduate and master's degrees from Harvard University. Crystal has led high-profile projects for the United Nations, the Asian Development Bank, and the U.S. government. She maintains a parallel career in education and community development, running a Kenya-based network for women in development and entrepreneurship, and setting up an organization to teach design skills to youth in South Asia. She also loves teaching business and academic English to adult learners. Crystal has traveled to 45 countries and lived in the Philippines, Thailand, Kenya, and Vietnam. Largely thanks to these travels, she has studied several languages, including Spanish, French, Ilongo, Swahili, and Sinhala. She travels the world with her cat Shadow and enjoys a life-affirming network of friends and family all over the globe. I know you all will absolutely adore Crystal's story, so I will let her tell you all about it. My name is Crystal Winston, and I'm 39 years old. I live abroad, and I live in Sri Lanka currently. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri in the 1980s. So as you know, that was a very tough time for the community on that part of the country. There was a lot of gang violence, teen pregnancy, all those things in the city where I grew up. So I was not in any way a kind of candidate for success when I was born. But I do think a lot of things happened that have prepared me to live abroad. One of which is that I had an unusual upbringing. I was homeschooled. I was homeschooled, K-12, went off to university after that. So I think that big adjustment from growing up in a Midwest town where there are only two kinds of people that you see every day, and then being drawn into a very competitive Ivy League university and with everyone from every walk of life, every class, every background, I think that kind of adjustment really sort of presaged my experience living abroad and it helped me become more adaptable, I think. So kind of the culture shock I experienced as a young person really helped me deal with the culture shock I face as I go from country to country. I asked Crystal where she attended university, what she studied, and if she had the opportunity and interest to study abroad. So I studied at Harvard University. I did history of art and architecture when I was there as an undergraduate. Obviously, coming from you know, kind of a challenged background and doing history of art and architecture, not necessarily the most money-making play you could do, but I knew that I wanted to also become an architect or something in the built environment. So I would have to do my master's program pretty quickly after undergraduate. And I was just really fortunate to have mentors who said, you say you want to do these things in the world, but architecture does these other things in the world. Are you sure this is what you want? Take some classes, explore. And I discovered urban planning that way. And so that became my field, my true field. And I went to graduate school. I went to the Harvard Design School for my master's program. Same faculty that had mentored me as an undergraduate it was a really positive experience and made a lot of great relationships and really changed the way that I kind of deal with criticism and deal with challenge because the design profession is very heavily criticism-based. It's not personal. It's all about arriving at the destination or the product or the project. So I think that also influenced me, kind of the studio experience. 
you know, and then because of how it really shaped me. So I didn't get the study abroad experience, not as an undergraduate, not as a graduate student, but there is a program that the Kennedy School does every year. So some of the graduate students will get together and go on a sponsored trip of some country. And I said, I have to see this. I'm an urban planner. I need to go. So I got myself onto the Kennedy School trip somehow and public policy. And uh, I went along with that group. We did two weeks kind of traveling around India. And that was my first time leaving the country. I went straight to India, you know. <laughs> it was just a really big, I think, shock and adjustment for someone who had never left the U.S. to go in my early 20s to a place so vastly different than where I was from. I think that was another kind of shock to the system that ended up being beneficial. There are many, many memorable things about it, you know, besides Delhi belly and being sick for several days. I think some of the positive things that came out of that trip were just seeing how we're all really the same. So I remember we did a tour of an informal settlement called Dharavi. It's one of the largest in the world. And I felt awkward going on this tour. I felt like I was excluding people. I'm walking around with my little backpack and I don't belong there. Why am I in their home walking through their streets? They're just trying to explain to us how this informal settlement works. But I felt like I was being invasive. And sure enough, as if though, you know, he picked up on my fear. (laughs) A young man comes and steps in front of us and he's like, what are you doing here? And he says it in just like perfect English. Like he could have come off the subway, you know, in Boston or, or somewhere else in New York. And he was just like, why are you here? This is our home. Who invited you guys? And I'll never forget, not just walking away quickly and having nothing to say for myself, never wanting to be in that position again, and learning compassion. Like, this guy, I could have met him in school. You know, it was just, we're all the same. We just have different circumstances. So I think that was a, a huge moment for me. You know, I've always been curious about the world and how it works, and I always wanted to see the world. Even when I was very young, you know, we had encyclopedias instead of the internet. I'm that old. So, you know, I would always sit for hours and flip through the encyclopedias and look at other countries' uh, entries. So it's always been in my mind. My mom made sure of that when we were young. And so I got a presidential management fellowship after I finished my master's, got the job in Washington, D.C., got the apartment, got, you know, into the happy hours and the parties and the inauguration events. And, you know, it's very fun, it's very glamorous, it's very kind of intoxicating. But I also got into international travel for business. So I was staying in these, you know, beautiful hotels and being flown out on various flights to go meet with various people around the world. And, you know, I said, I love this. This is what I want. I wish I didn't have to pay for it myself. The government for it, you know. As a young kid, right, I was doing stuff in my 20s. And I took the work very seriously. It was very tedious work. But the more I traveled, the more I realized that when I was coming home, I didn't have that coming home feeling. And at first it was really kind of hard to accept. Like I've been away for a week, I've missed a couple of weekends, couldn't hang out with my friends, I'm finally off this business trip, and I want to stay. I don't want to come back. And I think I wrestled with that a lot as I was doing travel for work. And I realized it wasn't that I didn't love my friends and my family and my life. I had everything I had worked so hard for. But something was calling. There was something more for me. Uh, And I felt greedy wanting that. I felt like I have done all the work. I've gotten what I've gotten. Am I too greedy to want something else? So it was really the international travel for work that started to raise these kind of thorny questions about moving abroad. And eventually, really, my best friend just kind of sat me down and was like, you're totally not where you need to be. I can see it in your face. You're not in flow anymore. You're not at your kind of peak. Promise me you'll do something in one year or else I'm going to have an intervention. And within that year, I took a leave of absence from work and I moved abroad to do some volunteer work in the Philippines. I asked Crystal to share more about her volunteer work that she did in the Philippines. Which organization she had found this volunteer opportunity with, the process, 
and also her experience in the Philippines. So I, I went with Peace Corps response, and the way that I found the opportunity was just totally random. I'm someone who is always interested in opportunity. So if I'm just curious about something like volunteer work or urban planning in this country, I will just look and read articles at ad nauseum, just because I'm curious. Um, so something like that had happened. I think someone had posted a link on some website, maybe even a Facebook post. And I just kept going down the rabbit hole. You know, what is it like to be a Peace Corps volunteer? I'm too old to be a Peace Corps volunteer. I don't necessarily align with all the values of traditional Peace Corps, maybe. But response was different. Peace Corps response allowed me to go abroad as a skilled volunteer to do a single project with the start and an end to create something of value and to leave it with the community who would own it. And that was more in line with what I thought development would be like, what I wanted it to be. And it just fit. I told my boss, I will be back, I promise. Just give me these seven months to go do this. Fortunately, he was very supportive. We had worked together to build the team. He knew that I was happy at the job and I was going to come back. Um, so he said, yeah, take the seven months. That's fine. If that's what you need to come back, refresh, do it. So I did. Preparing myself is, was hard <laughs> because Peace Corps has very rigorous screening criteria, even for response. So you have to be in perfect tip-top shape. Anything you're overlooking, you have to get it fixed before you go. Even if it's something small. You know, I had a wisdom tooth I had to take out. Because basically, you know, when you're in a remote environment, there may not be any resources to kind of to help you. So they wanted to set you up for success as best they can by making sure you're fully healthy and able to be independent. Basically, the Peace Corps process itself is really hands-on. It's a lot of things you have to do to be ready. And then there's also some language training that you're giving. When I went in country, they gave us a couple of weeks, basically, of language training. And they kind of put you out to, to do what you can in the time that you have. So it was, it's tough because you have to hit the ground running. But you're an older professional. You know what you're doing. It's not as daunting, I think, as if I had been, you know, an 18-year-old during Peace Corps or something like that. For me, it was the right time uh, to do it as a response volunteer. Um, I didn't have the privilege of going to Manila to work or some big city. I was literally in a fishing village. And <laughs> there was me and there was one Canadian guy who lived in the mountains and came down every few months. You know, So I was basically the only Westerner of any description in that village. So immediately everyone knew me. <laughs> you know, was immediately kind of, oh, that's the person you know, that, that they said was coming. Here she is. And so... It just makes you feel very visible. And as someone who had been living in D.C., I wasn't used to that feeling of visibility. I mean, women professionals who are African-American are everywhere in Washington, D.C. I'm not that visible. But in a small village in the Philippines, yes, quite. I made a conscious choice to just wear my hair natural the way it is right now. So I said, I'm going, I'm going as my full self. Let's see what happens. And I did. And there were a few moments that were awkward or I would perceive rudeness, but mostly from small children. So I remember some kids were kind of going behind me and they were just using the word black. That's the only, I guess, the only word they really knew how to refer to me. And they would just be like, ah, oh, she's black, black. And they're trying to call me with that. And I remember turning around instead of getting annoyed. And I said, ah, oh, what, what do you think my name is? And they were like, oh, I heard it was. And so I introduced myself. I said, my name is Crystal. What is your name? And they told me their names. And then I said, look at your arm. Show me your arm. And they were like, okay, here's my arm. And then I said, what color is your skin? And they said, oh, we're Filipino. I said, yeah, I know. I said, but what color is your skin? And so they gave it a hard look. They were like, what kind of brown? What kind of beige? What kind of... No, they didn't really know what to say. And I said, shall I call you this? Shall I just call you whatever color you, you are physically? And they were like, no, no. And I was like, so what are we doing right now? <laughs> like, how does this make sense? And the kids just really hadn't gotten there. Like just, they hadn't made that, that logical leap. No one was there to teach them that. And so, you know, they were very sweet for the rest of the time I was there. They, they loved me. But it was just, 
people hadn't, some people, especially the young people, hadn't really made that kind of connection to someone who was different than they were. So it was, it was quite an experience. <laughs> like people would know you on islands that you had not visited. So I checked into a hotel on a different island, and you know the woman behind the desk said, "Oh, you're Crystal. Ah, yeah, okay, you have your room." And I said. I didn't book. I just found a hotel and I walked in. <laughs> and they're like, oh, my friend told me you were coming. So we didn't know if you'd, were you going to check in. It's like, welcome. <laughs> so it's, it's, we're in a network society. I think being different really feels a lot harder because you stand out so much more because the society is so collectivist and everyone is so connected to each other that being an outsider feels more like being an outsider um, than I might feel in New York City or in a a more individualistic country. So Crystal has this incredible experience in the Philippines volunteering. So I ask her, what did she do after? You know, it's funny that when I went away for this volunteer project, you know, my boss, who were very good friends, and he said, yeah, you're going to leave, right? You know you're leaving. When you No way. Like, I was so dedicated to this program. I had hired I had trained, you know, I was in position to be a manager at the time. I became a manager. And there was just, there's no, I was so offended that he thought I would do this, you know. But as soon as I came back, it really sank in. I am leaving. This is not what I'm going to do forever. And I think that what happened to me was seeing other ways of life and how that worked. So I lived in a fishing village. I had a good friend who's also a rice farmer. And so she would take me around with her when I had free time. We would go to her rice farm. We would go for walks in the morning, just girls hang out stuff, I guess. So one day she took me to harvest and I noticed her harvesting. And they would just hire people from the community for like a couple of days of harvesting. And that was their work for like six months. They would pay them enough to last. And I asked her, like, what do you do between harvests? Like, aren't you, what, was, what is your life about? She was like, I wait for the rice. (laughs) She just couldn't understand why she needed to be doing something all of the time, 100% of the time. She's like, I have kids. I have my friends. I have my job. Like, she works in the government, the local government. And I live. (laughs) What else can I possibly be doing? This rice farm is not my life. You know, this rice paddy is not my life. And I think it was just how natural that seemed to her. And we were good friends. And I thought, yeah, why do I have to do this every day? Why am I kind of, you know, busting my hump in something I love? But that gives me very little balance. It gives me very little of a soft life. I'm constantly on the hustle, you know, to something else. And so I thought, you know, she's got a point. If there's another way to live, I probably owe it to myself to find out what that is. Whether it's right for me or not right for me, I have no idea. But just knowing that it's out there, being someone who's curious, I felt like I need to know. This is another way to live. I need to know what that is and make a decision, an informed decision about whether or not that is right for me. So that's what I started doing. I came back. I felt like I was ready to go. I was energized, but I had this sort of double mind going on. So I was, you know, hiring, I was recruiting for my job, but I was also applying to consulting gigs kind of on the side. You know, it's kind of, not cheating on my job, but it was an open job. I'll put it that, you know, where I loved what I was doing, but I needed to look around. So I was applying for consulting. I told my boss, look, I think I need to try consulting for a while. If something comes through, then I just want you to know that you can always call me. You know, I'll be happy to consult with you or work with you. This isn't the end of the professional relationship. But if something happens, comes through, then, you know, I need to pursue that. And so he understood, you know, he was a very entrepreneurial person himself. And so I did get a contract with the Asian Development Bank, and it was a very nice contract. So I said, you know what, I can't turn this down. You know, I asked for the leave to go away and come back, but there were very wise logistical reasons why I couldn't do that, you know, working for the government and then you know, city governmental organization gets very sticky and messy. So I just kind of cut that, left, 
and I became a consultant. And I worked with the Asian Development Bank for the project in the Maldives. So I was doing these 20-hour flights to go to meetings, and I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> this life is not set up for me to do here. My clients will be in Africa and Asia, so who am I kidding? I can't really do that from D.C. So I started looking around for other locations. I found Thailand, which I'd had a project in, actually, for the State Department. So I went back to that city. And I kind of settled there after traveling around and doing some stuff in Europe and Asia. I finally settled in Thailand, northern Thailand. I was in Chiang Mai. There's an amazing community there of people, of people of color. Obviously, it's Thailand, so there's people of color, but African-Americans as well and other expats. It's just a really nice community of expats. So I liked living there. It was comfortable. And it was just a really good quality of life that I had been looking for. And I really loved it. I got an offer from the UN, however, after I had finished the Asian Development Bank contract. And since I was a child, I've always wanted to work for the UN. You know, it's like you have this sort of view in your mind that they're going to fix the world. That's not reality, but, you know, you have that in your mind, you know, as a young person. So I said, okay, let's give it a try. And I went to Nairobi. I got a chance to live in East Africa, which was a dream come true. I just couldn't try it down. So I lived in Nairobi. Absolutely one of the best places I have, choices I've ever made was moving to East Africa. I would go back in a heartbeat. But I loved it. I traveled all around and did like a little motorcycle trip, you know, from Tanzania to Kenya. <laughs> just had a lot of fun. And then as the pandemic was starting, I went to Vietnam. I thought it'll be a side trip. I'm going to work my way back to Thailand. Now, I went in March of 2020, and you can imagine that about two weeks after I got there, basically the whole world shut down, especially Vietnam. So I was, in effect, kind of trapped for several months. But then even when things began to open up, I looked at how other countries were handling the pandemic versus my lived experience in Vietnam, and I thought, well, I actually feel safer here. I actually feel safer in Vietnam. So I chose to stay and I'm glad that I did. I didn't catch it the entirety of 2020. The entirety of 2021, I was fine. I was very safe in Vietnam. And then after that, I went home for several months. My family was like, it's a global pandemic. Do you want to come home or what? <laughs> this is the time for you to do it. If ever there was a time, this is it. So I came, I went back, I was tired, I was emotionally exhausted, and I just went home and just enjoyed you know, being loved on by my family and seeing my niece and nephew grow up. It was really sweet, but about six months was about as long as I could really do, and I ended up having to go back on the road again. I needed to get out, I needed to pursue my goals, and so I went to Sri Lanka. And it wasn't a random choice. So everyone asked me, why are you on this island? What's going on? Why are you still there? And uh, it wasn't random. I'm very passionate about design, as I've said. And I've been working on a design kind of nonprofit to teach young people skills in design, like design thinking or um, criticism, how to give and receive positive criticism, how to work with your community to make your community stronger and all that it can be. And so I tried to set this up in Kenya, didn't quite work out. I decided, let's just try it in Sri Lanka. There were a lot of indicators that kind of hinted that this might be a good idea. So I did my research. You know, it was obvious a crisis was coming. That was not a surprise, I think, to anyone who did the research. But I didn't know how big of a crisis it would be. So I knew I would be coming at a time of crisis. I didn't know that it would be the crisis that it became. But I came. And I set up the organization and we're setting up partnerships to do our first project this year. I asked Crystal to share with us her experience of being a Black woman abroad. Well, obviously Chiang Mai was the first place I really lived abroad after the Philippines. And so it felt very comfortable in many ways. Like It's very convenient. You can get street food or whatever you want. As a woman, it was very easy for me to live. I could go out at night and wear shorts and go down the street and nobody would even look in an impolite manner. And I just felt very safe 
there in northern Thailand. I spent some time in the islands. It wasn't for me. I don't really kind of vibe with that uh, that's happening in the south. I mean, if you've been there before, you know the reputation down there. So that kind of vibe isn't for me. So I, I like the north much better. And so in many ways to me, that was the most comfortable place I've lived of all of them. That was the most comfortable and the safest I felt as a woman traveler, and even as an African-American woman traveler. So Nairobi was a different kind of comfort. It felt like it was made for you. It felt custom made. And I think that was a kind of comfort that is incredibly seductive because everything just works. You know, if you go to a shop to buy a dress, it fits. You know, if you have something made for you, the tailor knows exactly how to cut it. The food that you eat, the things that are available for your skin and hair, it's just there. I mean, it's there always. It's easy. I sometimes go between wearing my natural hair like this or I'll install braids, like a protective style for myself. And in Nairobi, I could go to the grocery store and buy any color or texture of hair for braiding, like in the grocery store with my eggs. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is the meaning of convenience that is custom made for people like me. So I really, really loved living there in a way. It was fun. It was a vibrant nightlife there as well. But in terms of getting things done, like working with government and things like that, it's obvious that there are transparency issues. So it makes it a little bit harder to just come there and be involved in the community in an above board manner, which is really too bad because I would have loved to do my organization there. Really, I would have, but it was just too opaque for me to get off the ground. It's opaque in Sri Lanka, don't get me wrong, but it's opaque in a different way. But otherwise, I mean, it's such a beautiful place. The landscape is amazing. Uh, I mean, going on safaris on the weekends, you really can't make this stuff up. Like, it's actually a kind of a dream location. So, yeah, I really love Nairobi for different reasons. And then when it came to Vietnam, and I was in Nairobi for a year and a half. I was in Thailand for about eight months. Vietnam, I was there for, I would say, almost 10 months, almost a year entirely. And that was, I think, a different side of Southeast Asia than I was expecting. So I had this kind of Thailand, you know, relaxed, laid-back attitude that I was expecting. And Vietnam is a very different kind of place. There's more hustle. There's more bustle. There's a bit more of a kind of hustler's attitude, if you will, in the culture. And so... That was a little surprising to me. I couldn't walk down the street where I might have done in Thailand. I felt safe just doing my everyday stuff, but I couldn't like go out in the middle of the night and walk around in a pair of shorts you know, and a, a t-shirt and just be completely safe. Vietnam is a little bit more edgy than that. But, you know, street food is there. The food style is not quite my taste. There's a lot more kind of pickled flavors and so forth. So that wasn't for me all the time. But in general, you know, I lived near the beach. I had a really nice lifestyle. That was on par, I would say, with kind of my Thailand experience too and my Nairobi experience. That lifestyle is, is there. Quality of life is there. And it's easy to achieve. So that was my Vietnam experience. I mean, I spent a lot of it in quarantine. So I don't have a ton to, to really get out of it. I spent a lot of time in my apartment. But when I could travel, the landscape is amazing, and it's easier to get around in Vietnam than it is in Kenya. And Thailand is perhaps the easiest to get around. But in Vietnam, I could just literally hop on a bus and go from the north all the way to the south of the country, getting off every, you know, every stop, could see what's happening there, get back on, you know, and kind of keep going. So I had a lot of fun in Vietnam as well. It's easy to just take a motorbike around. So it gives you some freedom and flexibility too. Um, so I, it has its merits. They all are so different, you know. I would go back to all three of them. But I definitely have a desire to go back to Kenya. So Crystal has lived in so many different places and she's had such a wide variety of experiences. I was really curious about her experiences of 
leaving and having to reroute herself somewhere else. It felt different being kind of a digital nomad or a traveler, quote unquote, because you are putting down roots of some sort. You know, not the deepest roots in the world. We've been here a couple of years, but you know, you are putting some investment of yourself and your ideals and your passions into a place. And I think that carries with it both a celebration, you know, you're excited to do it, but you're also mourning a little bit because you're mourning all the other places in the world you know about that you won't be visiting or that you won't be investing in. And I think it's that opportunity cost of doing one thing where you give up the other things or you put them on hold that you feel. I think you start to feel it. The more choices you have to make like that. You realize, oh, I am actually saying no to things when I say yes to this other thing. So that was not easy. Not at all. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you have, please support this labor of love because it is labor nonetheless. You can support this solo indie podcast by becoming a member of the Flourish in the Foreign Buy Me a Coffee membership, where you can subscribe to support the podcast on a monthly basis. You can also give one-time support via Buy Me a Coffee as well. And you can do either one at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. Support this podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast. And if you listen on Spotify, you can also leave comments on each episode and even answer some of the poll questions I've created for certain episodes. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and even the colleagues you kind of like. This podcast continues to exist and thrive due to listeners like you. Thank you so much for your continued support. Now, back to the episode. Crystal is currently in Sri Lanka, and I asked her, what is it like living in Sri Lanka? I mean, the bureaucracy is legendary here, and everyone accepts it. It's not a controversial opinion in any way. But for example, you can hear the train in the background. There are some kind of quirky things that I had to adjust to and to understand why they were like that. So a lot of the country is kind of designed from its colonial roots. Of course, there's a much older layer than that. There's a royal past, there's a Sinhalese past, there's a Tamil past. It's very diverse, and you see all of that. But things like having a train run across the beach. Why? Why is there a train running across the beach? That's a waste of real estate. But you you start to, I think, think or understand kind of how people come to be how they are, how cultures come to be how they are. And it gives you a kind of patience with things that can be really challenging. So I think that first year was developing that second lens. There's kind of my lens. And then there's the lens for Sri Lanka. <laughs> you, know, you have to kind of adjust your thinking a little bit. Um, and I think that first year was really about developing that second lens. This is how it's done. There may be other and better ways to do it, but this is how it's done, okay? So unless it's going to cost you, you know, I I love this kind of five-minute rule. Don't spend five minutes on something that won't matter in five years. So you kind of relax a little bit. You just kind of go with the flow. You still have to know exactly what you want and how you're going to get what you want, but it just makes you laser-focused because everything outside of that question, how I get it, what it is, becomes less important. You have to learn how to turn off, at least in certain parts of the world, turn off the details and focus on the the objective. So I think I was learning that for the entirety of the first year that I was here, just how to do business, how to navigate people in the culture and survive in the language, which I barely do. Belonging. You know, for some of us, finding belonging is a really important factor in our move abroad. For others, we assume belonging will come. And for others, even still, we may not even feel like belonging is that important when we go abroad. 
And so I asked Crystal about belonging and how she has found belonging abroad, if she has ever sought belonging abroad, and if she currently feels that sense of belonging in Sri Lanka. That's a great question. Belonging is so complex to me in many ways. I, when I was growing up, you know, in my neighborhood and kind of the wrong part of St. Louis, I didn't belong then. You know, I, I was learning Spanish and I was a homeschool kid and I played instruments and I, I went to, you know, the university and I was the, you know, the kid who came in from not a rich family. You know, I had to learn all of these new skills that my parents didn't have to send me to school with. I had to go up on my own. What is a formal dance? How do I wear a ball gown? I have no idea. So in a way, I think, and this can be dangerous, but I think if you're used to being a bit of an outsider, this lifestyle is not so bad. And belonging can be flexible. I think your sense of belonging is not wrong, but it's something you have to constantly question if you're used to being an outsider. So for example, you know, I am used to kind of doing things on my own, getting stuff done on my own. Yes, having great friendships, but they're not your primary kind of go-to to fix your problems. You sort your issues, you talk to your friends, they give you advice, and then you handle it. Um, here, the culture is quite different. It's very collectivist. So for me to belong in a Sri Lankan way and for me to belong as an American, as a Black American woman, is two, two totally different things. And I don't think I belong in a Sri Lankan way. I don't think it's possible for me to really belong in a Sri Lankan way. And I've kind of closed the book on that and I don't lose any sleep over that because the way you belong here is to exist in the same place for a long time, generation by generation. So if you're at a party, people ask you, you know, what school did you go to? And they mean, what high school? what grade school you went to. People are friends for a lifetime. You know, your cousins are your close friends. Your friends are the first people you call if something happens. You know, oh my gosh, this happened. Hey, can you get me out of a jam? It's, it's a very different way of belonging than I, as an individualistic American woman, am ever going to belong anywhere on earth, partly because I just don't subscribe to half of it. The other half, I think, is very wonderful. And the people here don't subscribe to half of what I believe, and the other half I think is wonderful. So there's a kind of a meeting in the middle on two different terms that I think can be sticky. But for me to belong in a way that I am comfortable, I feel that I do. I feel that I, I, I've adapted and belong, that if I need something, yes, I can call people and ask for help. If I want to go somewhere, I can find out how to get there, someone will help me do it. I do feel connected in that way. So belonging in a way that I feel comfortable and nourished and supported, I do have. Belonging as a local, never. I asked Crystal how her identity as a Black woman, her concept of womanhood and concept of Blackness, evolved by being abroad. One way that I try to put it, at least explain it to myself, is that I think coming from the, a Black American experience and as a woman, you know, I have certain disadvantages that I grew up with or that I'm familiar with. And then I come to a new place, any almost any new place I've been, and it's interpreted entirely differently by the people where I arrive. And people say, oh, you're so privileged. You had this and you have that. And you're this, you're on TV, people will see you, they see your style of beauty, you know, and you're like, what? <laughs> well, I don't feel any of that when I'm in the U.S., but it is a privilege. I am not at all going to lie. Like, I think the soft life, kind of privileged girl that I never really experienced as a young person, it's so strange to have that flip as an adult in a new world and just suddenly you have the advantages or you're the one people are interested in because you're exotic or interesting or whatever, or people think they can get a come up, you know, there's <laughs> everything is in play, you know? So it's kind of this different orientation to the world that I think 
happens when, at least for me, as a black woman abroad. And it's, it's a little disorienting at first. You know, if you're like, let me tell you my problems. And the women that you meet are like, ah, how cute, you know, like you think you have problems. And then you're like, yeah, you're right. I kind of don't. And not to belittle in any way the experience of the black American woman, but I realized I have access to privileges, even just a way of thinking that my mom gave to me and her sisters and her mother and her father gave to her that put me so far ahead of the game that I did not know that they were putting me on game, you know? And it's that generation or two or three before who were working or making money or, you know, refining child rearing. Like my mom used to read these sort of child rearing books that were popular in the 80s and tested on us. You know, and, and a lot of these things have become our mainstream, but, you know, they're just becoming mainstream in certain parts of the world. So I remember telling some of my Kenyan colleagues we were, were chatting, and I was like, you know, we have to try. We can do anything. You know, a human is a blank slate. We're, we're capable. I was giving them this pep talk, and they just looked at me like, who told you that? <laughs> I was so cut down, you know. I was like, Wow. And no one told you that? And they're like, no, why? So, you know, it was, it was funny. I knew that I came across as the kind of, you know, supply in the sky American girl. And that's not how I identify myself at all. But in that cultural context, that's not what kids grow up hearing in my generation and another part of the world. So I sounded like that. You know, I sounded like the stereotype of the kind of flighty American girl. And so, you know, it's, it's given me a lot of pause and humility and gratefulness, I think, for the things that I have taken from my culture that really make me who I am. And I actually miss and love my culture more when I'm away from it. Maybe that's just life, but I actually miss things about that. You know, I've noticed, you know, we're not, at least in my experience, at East and West. It's like a middle way somehow. Like African, African-American culture is kind of always in the middle. It's like, Yes, you know, maybe women have to be subservient or have to be submissive to men, but you can work and you can have your own business. You know, there's this kind of tension that I absolutely love about kind of the African and African-American tradition that is really how I live my life. I'm kind of betwixt between and I identify with that, not East, not West, you know. And so to me, I think finding that and finding this new layer of my identity uh, that other people have pointed out to me um, has been uh, really kind of fun uh, in a way, but also really humbling. Y'all know what time it is. It's dating abroad. Yes. So I asked Crystal, what has been her experience dating in these international streets? For me, my experience of dating abroad has been just very kind of influenced by where I am. And having to kind of relearn what it means in that culture. And that's exhausting. I'm not going to lie. Dating abroad is so exhausting. If you're someone who is looking for a life partner, if you're just having fun, listen, I've gone through phases, okay? So, you know, you can just have fun. You can go on dates. You can meet people. That is tremendously enjoyable and eye-opening. But when you get to that life phase where you're looking for a life partner and you want to get married or have a commitment, then it gets tricky really fast because so many of our values are assumed and you can't assume anything in an intercultural relationship. It's constant communication all the time in order to really make it work. And it doesn't have to be exhausting. It can be fun, but you have to stay curious. I think about the other person. So I've dated a fair amount. I never stopped dating after I left the US. I kept an actually higher pace of dating when I left. And I think part of that was because I had better work-life balance. So I was able to kind of pause some part of my life, focus on this other part, move this part down, move this part up. You know, I was able to kind of manage the pieces better when I wasn't stressed or feeling unhealthy or having low energy. I was more me and I was able to bring more to other people. So I've constantly dated. I've dated any variety of people. I am not exclusive in any way in terms of 
uh, race or background or geographic kind of things like that. I just look at the person. What are you like? What are your values? Can we align in some way? How can we meet in the middle? And those are like the big questions that I have. But as a straight American woman, it is tricky for me because I have expectations that are here <laughs> in terms of what I am used to. You know, it's very normal to expect, you know, someone to kind of not necessarily go all out, but we expect to treat as equals, but also kind of, you know, petted or given kind of special treatment. And, you know, I won't say fairness or what, but I am used to that. And that's for what it is. It is what it is. So I always bring that. I'm always honest about that. Like, this is just what I grew up with. I'm a youngest kid. I'm an American woman. I have the right to do whatever I want at any point, And that's never going to change. But once you get to know me, I think it's worth it. <laughs> and so you have to realize you're not, at least for me, you're not in any way competing with local women. I never take that perspective because we've been raised so differently that it's like, you know, apples and oranges. If someone wants me, they'll get an orange. If someone wants me, they'll get an apple. There's no possible competition. So I, I just, it doesn't hurt, I think, my relationships with local women, at least I hope it doesn't, that I'm willing to date local men. But I just keep that that open. Like, we're so different. What is the competition? There's nothing. Either you want it or you don't, or you work for it or you don't. And I put myself in those shoes too. I am dating someone here, and it's been a great experience. I mean, he's a great guy. But there's, yeah, a lot of communication. I asked Crystal what she believes is her key to sustainability and longevity abroad. I think if you plan to live abroad, you have to figure out your kind of, my, my kit, you know, my kit of stuff that I need to be a functioning me and a happy me. And I think the sooner you figure that out, you can take your little kit anywhere in the world and kind of live your life. So I tried to learn that early in my journey because I knew I wanted to be a nomad in a way. So, you know, I spent time in reflection. I really think about, you know, what I needed to feel good and to feel sustainable where I am. And whether I was in D.C. or whether I was in Thailand or wherever in Nairobi, I had to stay true to that. You know, I need sunlight. I need to go for my morning walks if I need to have any energy. So I can't live in a place where I don't feel comfortable walking on the street because I need to be outside in the sunlight in the morning to really get my battery running. So that's a hard line. There are places I won't live if I don't feel safe on the street because I need that. So having a place I can be out in nature, having my practice. So identify as a Christian, I pray I need to have a place in myself where I am able to connect with my faith. And, you know, whether I'm at a Hindu temple or I'm at a Buddhist temple, it doesn't matter where I am. I can always have that connection to my own faith, no matter what kind of country or which religion I'm in. So learning how do I manage that? How much time do I need alone to do those things? And building that into my schedule. Also staying kind of interested in things. It's easy to fall into the scroll hole where you're just like on your phone every night or you know, having takeout in Netflix. And I realize it's easy to do that. It's made to be easy, but I need challenge to thrive. Like I personally need challenge. So I have to build in some challenge into my schedule, whether it is a new something, a new book I'm reading or some new concept I'm learning. You know, I have to have that. So if I know my kind of kid of thing, I need healthy food. I can't just eat meat every day. <laughs> you know, as people would have me do here, meat and rice, you're good. No, I need veggies. <laughs> right? So it's like knowing what your kit is and then emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, what kind of safety do I need to feel to clear my mind to think? Because if I feel pressed about money, I'm not going to be thinking creatively or taking risks. And I need to do both of those things. So there's a level of financial safety I need to have to free my mind. So for me, it's knowing my minimum operating standards. It sounds kind of harsh, a little bit cold, but I need to know my personal, and that's different for everyone, my personal operating standards, and then try to maximize that as much as I can. But I, I have to have the minimums. And now I'm more mature enough to know what those minimums are. I just plug and play. 
wherever I go. I need this, this, and this. Soft life, the best life. I asked Crystal if she was familiar with the concept of Black girl soft life and for her to share her feelings about the concept. But also, I was really curious to know if she feels she lives a soft life abroad. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I learned more about soft life living abroad than I would have ever learned in my, you know, corporate experience. And that's because a lot of I've learned a lot from women abroad. You know, I have very good friends who, you know, if I say I'm tired, I'm busy, the first thing they'll say is, hey, maybe you could, you know, hire my cleaner for a couple of days. She'll come, she'll check out your place, she'll make you food. You know, they having support is so normalized in some places, especially here among upper middle class women, that struggling is like, honey, why? Like, baby, what are you doing? You know, like, you need to relax. And get some help. I have very sweet women have, you know, my friends have come up to me and been like, you need to get that together, you know. And I I love it because it reminds me when I go into a culture that it's not there. I don't have to do that. There's there's another way. I'm in a place in a position where I don't have to do that. So I love living here for that reason. It makes soft life a lot easier. Of course, the U.S. dollar exchange rate has a lot to do with that. But yeah, I mean, I wake up in the morning, I make myself, you know, a a small batch of coffee from a local producer. I check my emails. You know, maybe I'll go on the balcony and watch the ocean and drink my coffee, have a fruit. Okay, now it's time to work. I'll get some work done, order a rice and curry takeaway, eat, you know, have a little time relaxing, go for a morning walk. It's it's the kind of life people would probably make fun of you for blogging about uh, if you did it in the U.S. And it's just normalized. And it's not just me because I'm the American. Most, I think, upper class single women who make what I make, that's their lives. Like, they're not hustling for anything. It's also very kind of old school. So a lot of women don't work in general just because they don't. That's not what they do. They stay at home. But I don't. I'm not that domestic, so I have help to do other things to make my life easier. And I realize how important that is, because when I have that downtime, I'm more creative, I'm more relaxed, I'm a nicer person to my boyfriend, (laughs) I'm a nicer person to my family on the phone, when I am not stressed out. So I do that as not just, you know, I want a soft life, I want to have these cute pictures. It's that I want to maintain myself in a way that I have longevity, as you said, but also that I'm my best me. You know, why should I be hustling and struggling? I feel like the generation before me did that. They gave me a gift, which is the ability to choose my own lifestyle. That's not something that really my mother had, my grandmother or my great-grandmother had. And this was their gift to me. They hustled so I could choose. If I want to hustle, I hustle. You know, I don't mind putting in a 50-hour week. I don't mind chasing clients. I don't mind, you know, writing, you know, contracts and boring stuff sometimes or going into dangerous parts of the world to work. They gave me that ability, that toughness, but they also gave me the ability to choose not to do that. And I want to honor all parts of that gift that they've given me. So for me, that's what soft life is about. I'm honoring that softness that they gave me that they didn't get to enjoy themselves. Wellness. I asked Crystal to share with all of us her personal definition of wellness and how that concept and practice has evolved during her time living abroad. That's something that has changed a lot for me. It's interesting you would say that because for me at first wellness was you know, work-life balance. Oh my gosh, I have a weekend to myself. Finally, you know, that was the first great gift, you know, of kind of going abroad. And then health, you know, I'm finally eating, you know, fresh food, healthy food. You know, it's strange how sometimes in the U.S., healthy food is more expensive and unhealthy food is actually much cheaper. So, and you know, you would make more money, you can make more money endlessly, or you could probably cut down your expenses. And most people cut their expenses and they kind of choose poor food. 
Whereas vegetables are more or less free, <laughs> literally, in certain parts of the world. Here in Sri Lanka, the growing season is almost all year. So you literally will see people just pull things off of other people's trees. Like, I, I saw a guy just pulling some leaves out of another guy's garden. I was like, that's so wrong. And my boyfriend was like, yeah, but there will be more. It's totally fine. <laughs> okay, what? So the scarcity mindset kind of backed down and this abundance in nature has kind of grown for me. So in many ways, yeah, I feel like it's gone from being about time to health and from health to emotions, emotional well-being. Because as I have the space to kind of think about things, it's like, oh, wait, why do I do that? Why do I feel that way? Why am I having these patterns? You know, and I have that kind of emotional time and space now. Now that I've checked off my health, I've checked off some other things. Okay, now I can focus on something else. So it keeps evolving what wellness means. And I hope it keeps evolving until, you know, my end. <laughs> because I think it's something that changes as we get older. We focus on different parts of life. For me now, I think I'm focused on my emotional wellness and my relational wellness. Thank you so much, Crystal, for being such an amazing guest. For those of you that want to keep up with Crystal, you can via social media. So on Instagram, so there are two different Instagram pages. My personal one is uh, at, at refraction, R-E-F-A-R-A-C-T-I-O-N underscore blog. It's just the word refraction underscore blog. And that is my Instagram, personal Instagram account. For Urban Plan Global, it's just at Urban Plan Global on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you'd like to learn more about this guest, please check out their show notes page at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes. If you would like to be a guest or know of someone who would be an interesting guest on the podcast, please fill out the guest inquiry form located on the website under the contact tab. That's flourishintheforeign.com slash contact. I will be doing another Ask Me Anything episode at the end of the season. So be sure to please submit your questions via the link in the description of this episode. Stay up to date with everything that is happening with me and the podcast by subscribing to the Flourish in the Foreign newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter via the link in the description of this episode or by going to the website flourishintheforeign.com. Be sure to check out the Flourish in the Foreign blog and the Flourish in the Foreign bookshop powered by bookshop.org, where you can support local bookstores and Flourish in the Foreign at the same time. Check out my list of books to help you move, live, and thrive abroad. Make sure that you are subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel for when I drop new videos and follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Flourish Forum. You can also follow the podcast on LinkedIn at Flourish in the Foreign. And of course, subscribe to the podcast via whichever platform you listen on and leave a review. As always, Big thanks to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. Here is this week's affirmation. Take whatever resonates and leave what doesn't. I am open to the vision of a life well lived that lives within my heart. Therefore, I am open to another way to live. And I know I deserve to explore that way of living. I trust that on this journey, I am safe, I am protected, and I am guided. I trust that I know what is right for me and what is not. I give myself the time and the space to just be and to be curious as to what possibilities lie ahead of me and outside of my current reality might just be the things that I have always wanted and needed.
as I set an intention to go forth and allow my life to divinely magnetize to its highest and best use and purpose, but also align itself to this amazing vision that I hold for this next chapter of my life, I celebrate the serendipity, the curious coincidences that will undoubtedly occur as I am now open to the magnificence and the infinity of possibilities for my life. I embrace all of these possibilities and I understand that although I may hold a vision for myself, that getting there is rarely a linear process. I intend to enjoy going the scenic route if need be and to enjoy the ride as I take one step after another in the direction of my dreams. And so it is. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I think the crime of the U.S. that we kind of require people to have earned their way into wellness. And I think that's that's really ugly and I think it doesn't serve people and we've made living a calm comfortable life a luxury and so I I love that idea that you know and I hate it at the same time right (laughs) that leaving the U.S. is is a path to wellness right and it's kind of connected to the point I make in the book that you know leaving the U.S. is often the only way that African Americans have been able to feel American something's wrong with that